This is Space Time Series 26, Episode 77, for broadcast on the 28th of June, 2023. Coming up on Space Time, the mysterious arc discovered in Andromeda, new observations suggesting not all stars are made the same, and a new study shows that Tonga's Hunga volcanic eruption produced the most intense lightning ever recorded. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Citizen scientist astronomers have discovered a mysterious arc that appears to be close to the M31 galaxy in Andromeda. The mystery observation, reported in research notes of the AAS, were detected in the light of doubly ionised oxygen, but doesn't seem to radiate at any other wavelength. Located just southwest of the Andromeda galaxy nucleus, the arc extends over one and a half degrees across the sky. Professional astronomical surveys hadn't previously detected the arc because of its large angular size and extremely low surface brightness. Exactly what it is remains a mystery. Scientists don't even know if it's associated with the Andromeda galaxy. Some speculate it may be part of an old nearby planetary nebula or supernova remnant within the Milky Way. However, it lacks the usual hydrogen alpha emissions expected from such a nebula. It's also been suggested that this could be a bow shock in the stellar halo of M31 caused by its interaction with the galactic halo of the Milky Way as the two galaxies interact with each other in prelude to their eventual merger in 3.7 billion years from now. Another suggestion involves stellar tide streams within the Andromeda halo. Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, says follow-up spectroscopic observations will provide more details about its distance and its composition. Andromeda. Well, when you mention the word Andromeda, uh, hopefully in most people's minds, at least in astronomers' minds, that means Andromeda Galaxy, the famous Andromeda Galaxy, from which many, many marauding aliens have come in various science fiction novels and pulp magazines and things over the years. But it is actually a real galaxy out there, the Andromeda Galaxy. And uh, these French and German amateur astronomers have stumbled across a previously unknown and unseen dim arc of faint light close to the direction towards the uh, Andromeda Galaxy. And the Andromeda Galaxy is the the nearest large galaxy to our own. It's about two and a half million light years away, I think. It's at least the same size as the Milky Way. It's a big galaxy. Now, two of these amateurs were looking at images taken by the third when they spotted this arc. It hadn't been seen before because it is very large. You need to get like a very wide angle view of the night sky. So the the third um, amateur used a pretty high-tech backyard telescope and camera to take multiple images and put them together to to get this big, wide-angle view. And these other people uh, had a look at it and thought, what's that very faint thing we can see there? So um, a total of 50 hours of exposure time, you know, uh, to produce this big, wide-angle view in which they uh, spotted it. What's not yet known with this arc... This, this unknown arc, what it is or where it is, whatever, is what it's made of and, more importantly, how far away is it? Is it fairly close? Is it within our Milky Way and it just happens to be in the direction towards the Andromeda galaxy? Or is it 
as far as the Andromeda galaxy? Is it all the way out there, about two and a half million light years away? Or is it somewhere in between? Maybe it's on the outskirts of our galaxy or in between us and the Andromeda galaxy. Nobody knows. So follow-up observations will be coming along to help answer this question. And reading up about this, the amazing thing to me is that amateurs are making these sorts of discoveries because the kind of backyard telescopes and camera gear they've got now is just unbelievable compared to even 30 years ago. They can just do the sort of science that even professional astronomers would have loved to have done 30 years ago or even 20 years ago. So there's a lot of good stuff that amateur astronomers can do it. Amateur astronomers are actually quite involved in many so aspects of astronomy. So important in society. Yeah, yeah. Well, they are because if you're a professional astronomer and you want to do some work and you want to take some observations or something, you've got to apply for time on a professional telescope at a professional observatory. And hundreds of other people are also applying for time on that same thing. And there's a time allocation committee that looks at all the proposals and decides which ones they're going to hand out some time to. And it might be an hour, it might be six hours, it might be three consecutive days, it might be a few hours around the time of new new moon over several months, whatever, you, you get what you're given and if it happens to be cloudy that night, well, you're out of luck. So they have limited resources in a way, whereas amateur astronomers are spread all around the globe. They've got really great gear now and they know what they're doing and professional astronomers really rely upon them for um, making discoveries, for instance, of comets or asteroids or, or supernovae and when something does pop up that is quite significant, the alerts go out to the professional astronomers and they can then swing their telescopes into action. There's always provision made for when something sudden or, or fleeting happens that um, they, can, they can get access to telescopes to quickly get some data on whatever the amateurs have, have discovered. So, uh, yeah, citizen science uh, in the uh, the sky sphere is really big stuff these days. And it's interesting because in the old, old days, I'm saying, you know, hundreds of years ago, or even maybe a couple of hundred years ago, 150 years ago, the, um, the tradition was that you had what they called the gentleman astronomer. Of course, very few women were allowed to do astronomy back then. So you had the gentleman astronomer, often of independent private means who would set up their own observatory and they were in effect the professional astronomers of their day. They were doing the cutting leading edge sort of work and discovery exploring the night sky. And we sort of still have that in a way these days with the amateur astronomers and, and the citizen scientists. So good on them. More power to them all. There are plenty all around the world. Stacks here in Australia doing really, really good work. And the astronomers, the professional astronomers, really rely upon them for their uh, discoveries and follow-up observations. That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And this is Space Time. Still to come, observations suggest that not all stars are made the same way. And Tonga's Hunga volcanic eruption appears to have produced the most intense lightning ever recorded. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A new study suggests that the universe's most massive stars are being formed through a different process compared to other low-mass stars like our Sun. The new findings, reported in the Astrophysical Journal, defy the traditional consensus that all stars form the same way. It's just a matter of how much material they have to work with. It suggests the formation of really high-mass stars is fundamentally different from the formation of low-mass stars like the Sun. And it's not just a case of scale. High-mass stars play an important role in the evolution of the universe because of the amount of heavy elements they release and the shock waves produced when these massive stars explode in supernovae at the end of their lives. Despite their importance, the way massive stars form remains poorly understood due to their rarity. 
Now, these new observations came about when astronomers noticed the difference while mapping 39 large interstellar molecular gas and dust clouds where high-mass stars were expected to form. The team were using ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array Radio Telescope in Chile, in order to peer deep inside these dense molecular clouds. The clouds they selected belonged to a category known as infrared dark clouds. Infrared dark clouds are massive, cold and very dense with lots of gas and dust and are thought to be the sites of massive star formation. The team focused on a bunch of clouds showing no signs of star formation in order to understand the beginnings of the formation process before the young stars actually ignite. In the 39 clouds they examined, the team found more than 800 stellar seeds, referred to as molecular cloud cores, which astronomers think will eventually evolve into stars. But of these, 99% lacked enough mass to become high-mass stars. That's assuming that high-mass stars evolve in the same way as their better-understood low-mass counterparts do. The lack of high-mass stellar embryos suggests that the formation mechanism for high-mass stars must somehow be different from low-mass stars. The study's authors then went on to measure the distribution of cores. In stellar clusters, high-mass stars are grouped together, while low-mass stars are more widely distributed. However, the new observations revealed that the locations of high-mass cores exhibited no preference compared to the position of low-mass cores. On the other hand, denser cores tended to be locally concentrated. This suggests that denser cores rather than more massive cores may be the progenitors of high-mass stars, and that the denser cores may grow more efficiently than less dense ones, resulting in the creation of larger stars. This is space-time. Still to come, a new study has found that Tonga's Hunga volcanic eruption produced the most intense lightning ever found on Earth. And later in the science report, discovery of a new ankylosaur dinosaur species on the Isle of Wight. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A new study has found that Tonga's Hunga volcanic eruption produced the most intense lightning ever recorded. The eruption on January 15, 2022, produced some 2,600 flashes of lightning every minute at peak intensity. The findings, reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, shows there were nearly 200,000 lightning flashes in the volcanic plume during the eruption, creating a supercharged thunderstorm that produced the most intense lightning ever seen. Scientists were using the lightning to peer into the ash cloud, teasing out new details about the eruption's timeline. When the submarine volcano erupted in the southern Pacific Ocean, it generated a massive plume of ash, water and magmatic gas at least 58 kilometres high. This towering plume gave scientists useful information about the scale of the eruption but it also obscured the vent from satellite view, making it more difficult to track changes in the eruption as it progressed. But high-resolution lightning data from four separate sources, never previously used altogether, have now let scientists peer deep into the plume, teasing out new phases of the eruption's life cycle and gaining fresh insights into the weird weather that it created. The study's lead author, Alexa Van Eaton, from the U.S. Geological Survey, says the eruption triggered a supercharged thunderstorm, the likes of which had never previously been seen. 
The lightning storm developed because the highly energetic explosion of magma happened to blast through the shallow ocean. Molten rock vaporised in the seawater, which then rose up in the plume and eventually formed electrifying collisions between volcanic ash, supercooled water and hailstones, the perfect storm for lightning. Combining data from sensors that measure light and radio waves, scientists tracked the lightning flashes and estimated their heights. The eruption produced just over 192,000 flashes, made up of nearly 500,000 electrical pulses, peaking at 2,615 lightning flashes per minute. Some of this lightning reached unprecedented altitudes in Earth's atmosphere, between 20 and 30 kilometres high. Van Eaton says this eruption shows that volcanic plumes can create the conditions for lightning far beyond the realms of meteorological thunderstorms. It turns out volcanic eruptions can create more extreme lightning than any other kind of storm on Earth. The lightning provided insights not only into the duration of the eruption, but also its behaviour over time. Turns out the eruption lasted much longer than the hour or two initially observed. The new observation showed that the January 15th event created volcanic plumes for at least 11 hours. Scientists saw four distinct phases of eruptive activity, defined by plume heights and lightning rates as they waxed and waned. The authors were also puzzled by concentric rings of lightning centred on the volcano that expanded and contracted over time. See, nothing like this had ever been seen before, and there's nothing comparable in meteorological storms. Single lightning rings had been observed, but not multiples, and the single events were tiny by comparison. Intense high-altitude turbulence was again responsible. The plumes injected so much mass into the upper atmosphere that it sent out ripples in the volcanic cloud, like dropping pebbles in a pond. The lightning appears to have surfed these waves, moving outwards as 250-kilometre-wide rings. And as if all that weren't enough to make the eruption fascinating, it also represents a style of volcanism known as fritophilion, which occurs when large volumes of magma erupt through water. Previously, this type of eruption was only known from geological records and had never actually been observed using modern instrumentation. The Tongahonga volcanic eruption changed all that. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. A new study analysing data from the landmark Asprey trial has found that prolonged daily use of aspirin increases the risk of anemia by about 20% in people mostly aged 70 and over. The results reported in the journal Annals of Internal Medicine have prompted researchers to suggest that regular monitoring for anemia be considered for older adults who take low-dose aspirin. The authors suggest that if older adults have concern about their health or their medication, they should discuss it with their family doctor. A new species of frog has just been identified in New South Wales, but concerningly, scientists say its disappearing distribution warrants its listing as endangered. A report in the journal Zootaxia says the newly discovered species Myxophiles australis is a cousin of the existing species Myxophiles balbus, the stuttering frog. The two species have a strikingly similar appearance and very similar mating calls, likened to a stutter. But genome testing revealed that the two frogs are from different species. 
A new ankylosaur dinosaur has been described on the Isle of Wight. Wectopelta beretti was discovered in the Wessex Formation and represents the first armoured dinosaur from this area to be discovered in 142 years. A report of the Journal of Systematic Paleontology describes the find as important because it sheds new light on ankylosaur diversity in the Wessex Formation and early Cretaceous England. The 10 metre long herbivore is estimated to have weighed around 9 to 10 tonnes. The fossilised remains show differences in the neck and back vertebrae, a very different structure to the pelvis and more blade-like spiked armour than other ankylosaurs discovered on the island. Beretti is most closely related to Chinese ankylosaurs, suggesting these dinosaurs were able to move between Asia and Europe during the early Cretaceous. At that time, the Isle of Wight would have had a climate similar to that of the Mediterranean and it was a floodplain covered with large meandering river systems. Floods would have then washed organic materials such as plants, logs and even dinosaur bodies together and as the waters receded, this organic matter would have been isolated in ponds on the floodplain that eventually dried out and they were then buried in the clay soil, preserving the organic material as fossils. Google has finally released the new 2023 Pixar tablet powered by the company's Tensor G2 chip. It functions as a photo album, a home controller, a smart assistant and an entertainment device. With all the details, we're joined by technology editor Alex Saharov-Royt from techadvice.life. It's the Google Pixel tablet, so it's the first tablet in a while. They have had some tablets in the past. But this is their latest tablet, and it's using a trick that most people aren't aware of or haven't seen before. There actually are some tablets that have done this, but they're not mainstream in the same way that the Google Pixel tablet is. And that's by having a base that acts as the, the speaker so you dock your tablet onto the space. It then looks a bit like an Amazon Echo or a Google Nest device. So it's got the smart screen that can display large images of the time and your photos and other snackable information that you can just glance at. But you can then just pull the tablet off its base, and the base is obviously plugged into power. But you can pull the tablet off its base, and it's then an Android tablet. So it's like a giant Pixel smartphone, for example, with an 11-inch screen. And Google has made a lot of efforts to make a lot of apps be tablet-specific. So you can carry this around and use it as a tablet. It is compatible with a stylus, although Google doesn't sell one, at least not in Australia, that is compatible. And it is also compatible with your Bluetooth keyboards, but there is no keyboard dock, unlike with the iPad. But the whole idea is that during the launch of this thing, people will say that many people use their smartphones more than their tablets. And so when they do go to their tablets, the tablet's flat. And this way, you can just attach the tablet to magnetizes onto the, the speaker dock. And it's at the correct angle for letting you easily do streaming or watch YouTube videos whilst you're doing cooking, some sort of cooking video or video calls. But then you can easily just pull it off just like pulling at it. It just easily snaps off. And there's also a case that sits on the back, obviously, of the tablet. And the case has this sort of oval-shaped ring, which is a kickstand. And the cool thing about this oval-shaped ring is that it's just bigger than the size of the area where you dock it magnetically onto the, the dock. So it's designed to never need to remove the case. But you, when you take the, ca- the tablet off, in the dock, you can then just pull the kickstand out. And we've seen similar sort of kickstands on Microsoft Surface devices. One criticism is that the 
speaker dock isn't also a Google Nest. It would have been a cool thing if it was, but it would have added to the cost. And it's got the long-lasting adaptive battery. So depending on what apps you're using, it will intelligently go through your battery life and try and give it to you, give you as long a battery life as you need. You've got the Tensor G2 chip, the same chip that's in the Pixel devices, the fingerprint unlock. Uh, and, you know, the, the tablet I've been using it for the past few days, it is a nice, smooth tablet. It doesn't stutter. It's not a cheap tablet. You can find really cheap ones and office works for like $99. This is definitely on the more premium end of the scale. And uh, good to see that Google is taking tablets seriously and working on making sure that as many of its apps as possible work smoothly on the tablet size screens and are not blown up phone apps, which was the case for many years with many of the previous Android tablets out there. I mean, Apple has been making iPad-sized apps. They were calling them HD apps at the time since 2010. Google has only really started to optimize its apps for the tablet-sized screens this year. I don't know why it took them 13 years to really do this, but <laughs> but it has. But they're in the game and uh, they've got a, a different uh, and sort of an edge, something hopefully Apple will do something similar to allow its tablets to be in more of a smart display mode, just like we saw with iOS 17, where you can have all these widgets and you can turn your phone into like a smart display. I'm sure that's something they'll launch for the iPad and Google has managed to beat them to the punch and they've done a good job. $899 in Australia for the tablet and $499 in the US with the base. The tablet kickstand case is extra. That's Alex Sahara-Vroid from techadvice.life. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimewithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 